0: Welcome to Likeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montreal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also, sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. GoodMix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of GoodMix at Amazon and at GoodMixFoods.com by using the code LIKEVIL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillpodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: Okay, welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking to uh, writer John McFetteridge, who's written lots and lots of novels. We're going to be talking about the stuff that he's done um, set in Montreal today, but uh, I imagine conversation is going to be very wide-ranging given what's uh, going on. So welcome, John. Well, thank you. Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and say, you know, who you are, what you do? (laughs) All right. Well,
2: I like to think I pretty much covered it. I'm a a novelist. uh, And uh, that's pretty much I have written a little bit for television. And uh, I grew up in Montreal. I grew up on the south shore of Montreal in Greenfield Park until my last year of high school when I went to LaSalle. And then from there, I was I was pretty much downtown. Until I was in my thirties, and then, uh, like a lot of people, I moved out, and I was in Ontario. I was in Toronto for a little while, and now I'm down kind of in the Niagara Peninsula.
1: Okay, so the the main—I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to try not to give away like too much plot or anything, for yeah, you because know, I want our listeners to go and buy your your novels. But the the Montreal trilogy, um, Black Black Rock. Uh, a little more free, and one or the other. Um, they are main character in them is this uh, cop named Eddie Dougherty or <laughs> or Doherty. <laughs> Love that. Uh, Eddie Doherty, who's from the point uh, his parents get out and move to Greenfield Park, and then he ends up. So, that is to, to what extent is that loosely based on your biography, and to what extent is that just? pure fiction?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> a lot of it is uh, autobiographical, uh, not just of me, but of family members and friends. My The character of Eddie Doherty is actually the same age and has a lot of the same uh, personal history as my older brother, except instead of joining the Montreal Police, my brother joined the RCMP. And instead of being uh, in Montreal, he was in uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick. But the, a lot of the policing stuff kind of follows his career and a lot of the other characters are are I mean they've definitely got a lot of traits from from people that I grew up with and people that I knew one of my one of my friends uh that I I knew since I was born lived across the street from me in Greenfield Park uh his parents are a little bit like Eddie's parents his mother's french and his father's english and uh and his last name is very english it was Buchanan and but he went back and forth my the, the family went back and forth between English and French all the time. So there's a lot of that kind of just people I knew.
1: Yeah. Well, the the obvious comparison for me, reading your novels, with it reminded me very much of Quentin Tarantino's last movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Except it was sort of like Once Upon a Time in Montreal. Right. And, yeah. it, you know, it has that, you know, like when uh, Quentin Tarantino, when he was, I saw a long interview, really intelligent interview uh, with him. It was done in Berlin uh, right after the, the opening of the movie in Berlin. And uh, you know, the reporters there, it's just this, just a totally different breed. Like they ask like really intelligent questions. (laughs) I mean, like really, really smart questions. Like, you're just like, wow, you did your homework. Uh, But he, he said that the movie that all the, you know, when you're those driving scenes from the movie, he goes right. that's all the stuff that I saw as a little kid driving around LA with my stepdad right. and him and that's all the like all everything you're seeing like the the neon signs and the various it's it's kind of memories of his childhood and that's uh a lot of the I mean Montreal is I would say the main character in your Montreal trilogy. It's not Eddie Doherty. It's Montreal is like the, the main character. But uh, so, so this is kind of, this is kind of put together memories of your childhood and other stuff, you know, stories you heard and things like that. Yes. And what I
2: discovered when I started to do research for the book, once I decided I was actually going to write it, because I think I did kind of avoid it. And I think I kind of avoided writing about Montreal for a while when I first started to write, Novels. I I was in Toronto and I and I was trying to figure out Toronto and it's a difficult city to understand. Really, it's got uh, it's kind of got an overview that everybody gets, but it's a little tougher to get kind of underneath the surface a bit. But I think part of it was also I I was um, not really writing about uh, about Montreal because I I I had a lot of mixed feelings. And when I started to when I decided I was going to write this book and I started to do the research on it. I found it really fascinating to, to look back at all these uh, events that happened when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and I had memories of them from that time, and then I was looking back at them as an adult and seeing them in, in quite a different way. So I think I understand what, uh, what Tarantino means about, about the images from driving around as a kid and then seeing it again as an adult. It's a, it is like a, like a character that's grown up. It's quite, it's, you can see the roots of it, but it's really different now. So it was. It's out. It's. I found it. Found it fun and kind of interesting to try and tell a story about that, the character of Montreal as it actually was at that time.
1: Yeah. Well, he he said what he was trying to do to some extent was, and I guess this is a very uh, romantic project, but he was trying to remember this wonderful, optimistic, happy, prosperous. Uh, summer of love LA that happened before everything went to shit before everything got violent before people started blow things blowing things (laughs) up before there was the weather underground before there was you know Sharon the Manson murders and all this stuff and and as is usually the case with Tarantino he he's a revisionist he wants to he's like this is what should have happened right and this is what as opposed to what actually happened, right? And so right. you're you're also covering this period of the late late 1960s and the first uh, first half of the 1970s, which was, I mean that that's the period of time that produced me. Uh, I was <laughs> I was born in 1974, oh, and nice. <laughs> so I, I grew up. I grew up kind of in the in the ruins of the events that happened that you describe in your that are kind of the backdrop in your novels i grew up in this uh you know city that was everybody you know one of my earliest memories growing up in montreal was just people constantly talking about how things used to be so great and everything sucks now and everything's broken and half you know in my neighbor in Verdun, like on Wellington Street, you know, about a third of the stores were boarded up. Uh, about a third of the people were on uh, unemployment or welfare, or there was a lot of domestic violence, a lot of poverty, a lot of misery, a lot of substance abuse. It was just like, but there was this pervasive feeling like that I had showed up um, after the party. That yeah, I, like sure. i showed up and that everything was just going to suck from now on. <laughs> and anytime you talk to anybody and it wasn't just like, it wasn't people talked, Oh, it was so cool. Back in the day, we were making like 18 bucks an hour. We had like <laughs> good jobs and you know, we, everybody just, it was really dark. And so I, I also like you, um, I've spent, you know, as a, you know, academically and a lot of things, I've been very obsessed with this period uh, as well, trying to understand like what, you know, what happened, you know, because we were living very much in the world that was created by the, the 1970s.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think Montreal had the same, in some ways, some of the same kind of experiences as he's talking about in LA, where we had Expo 67 and it was from all accounts are super successful. A really fun time, and there was very few issues about it. Uh, in, in the research I did, there, there was talk about one of the things that I found fascinating was when I started to talk about this this period and the and the October crisis and and the and the, the bombs and things like that. Everybody talked about mailbox bombs. Everyone I spoke to said, "Oh yes, I remember." You know, walking on the other side of the street because we were afraid of the mailbox bombs and and all that. And then I was really surprised to discover that. The mailbox bombs happened in 1963, and they all happened over uh, the course of about two months in April and May, and then uh, arrests were made, and that period stopped. In the lead-up to Expo 67, there was a a big concern from the city officials and from the police that there was going to be a lot more kind of what we would call terrorist activity, but there was none. Expo was just a big party. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it was, it was from all accounts, everybody had a great time. There was, there was almost, you know, there was <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite headlines is from a, an Al police newspaper that talked about um, the, the number of prostitutes coming into Montreal for Expo and someone else saying, <laughs> we really don't need to bring in any more. But, <laughs> but that was the kind of crime that, that happened during, during Expo. There wasn't any of this, there wasn't any bombs, there wasn't any of that kind of stuff going off. But... In 1968, it really picked up again, and and in and in 1968, 69, right up to the October crisis, there was there was a lot of stuff. It's almost every day, it's really, really. I found it looking back on it amazing how almost every day in the newspaper there was something else. And in, in the in the when I was writing this book a few years ago, I thought, man, today that would just drive people insane. So I'm in it. A, it's it's a. a, a Kind of a, a moment in time like that, and then maybe we're having another one now. It looks like that would be probably overdue. But one of the books I read as research that I thought was really good was by Mark Kurlansky, and it's called "1968: The Year That Rocked the World," and it was about Paris and Prague and Mexico City and a whole bunch of American cities. And 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 I it was, I was it was a,
1: worldwide. It was it unbelievable. was
2: worldwide, yeah. and I was a little disappointed that. Montreal is not even a footnote. It's like so small in it. And I thought, wow, it was so important to everyone I knew. But it was part of what was going on in the world. It was just everywhere. And then that other part about Montreal that I I think is really kind of, I don't know how how like really unique it is, but it's really interesting to me is that um, after the October crisis, which really kind of ended in January of 1971, uh, there was no more of that kind of activity. There was no more. There was no more uh, bombs. There was no more kidnappings. There was no. There was nothing after that point, and I thought, in some ways, that's that's really the the thing that makes this really interesting to me is is that it didn't continue after that point, and it really seems to me like that that was maybe kind of a turning point that we could maybe learn more. Why didn't it? Um, a friend of mine, a guy named Adrian McKinty, writes uh, a series of novels set in Belfast in the 1980s. Well, that troubles went on for a long time in that city. And I remember, you know, we were we were we kind of both started these series at the same time, and only his trilogy is about eight or nine books now. Wow. <laughs> I actually, I actually stopped the trilogy at three, like I thought you were supposed to. But, um, <laughs> but we were talking about, uh, like, why montreal didn't turn into belfast and and i was and all he said to me was well you're just lucky it didn't i thought yeah i mean it is good that it didn't but then as you say there was all kinds of other fallout there just wasn't that kind of there was boarded up stores but there weren't car bombs.
1: yeah well i think that the answer to that i i by the way i'm absolutely fascinated by that exact question you just put your finger on (laughs) i've I've taught entire classes on that theme about why it is that um, revolutionary movements or reform movements, why do they turn violent in some places and not in other places? And there's a, you know, there's a number of different factors involved, but I think the, I mean, this is a strange I mean, John Rawls and Saul has been talking about this for years, that that is a, an interesting thing about Canada in general is that um, I think he, he did a tally at one point and he said that there's been something like 78 people have been killed in political violence in Canada since like 1850 or something like that. Which is, and then he gives the numbers for France, for the UK, for Italy, for Germany, for the United States, for Japan. It's a freakishly small number like it's very 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 remarkable and uh, even countries like little countries like finland have you know in the tens of thousands of people who've been killed in political violence in the last you know 170 years and i think there is this uh basic kind of decency and moderation which we've been able to rely upon where you know even as soon as the, the FLQ started getting violent, um, the public opinion among separatists turned against them. Right. Right. They, and so when you see like on the news, these places in the world where, you know, the, the sun blows himself up in a mall and kills a bunch of, you know, kids and old people. And then like the whole village throws a party for his family. And it's like a big celebration. You're a wonderful, you know, that just did not happen in Quebec. Like people right. people who were hardcore separatists simply did not condone uh the vast majority of them did not condone violence. And that's right. fascinating. I, I don't uh you know, there's a <laughs> I, I'm not sure why that is. I mean John Rawls and Saul <laughs> would say that John Rawls and Saul would say that it's a combination of uh the legal system having forbearance like like pardoning tons of people letting a lot of people go not coming down really hard on people uh the political system being kind of sort of open uh, in ways that drive more hardline people insane um but being more open to kind of allowing people to come back into the system you know i don't know what what do you think i
2: think that's probably all all a big part of it um (laughs) <laughs> one of the things that makes me makes me uh, it makes me think of is one of the guys that I spoke to in the, doing the research was uh, a guy named Robert Cote, who was the head of the bomb squad in the '60s and into the '70s, in Montreal. But he was he went on; he was a city councilor in Montreal. He was a pretty uh, uh, active guy, and now he runs something called the Montreal Police Museum. So I was interviewing him, and one of the things that that he said to me was. Uh, uh, on one of the anniversaries of the October crisis, the, one of the newspapers, I think it was the Gazette, wanted to do a big uh, profile for the anniversary. And he said to me, oh, he'd done lots of these profiles before. He, it, it was getting boring to him like that. He said to them, why don't we get uh, uh, the guy's name, his last name was Joffroy. He was the guy who built the bombs for the FLQ. And, and Robert Cote was the one who diffused them. He said, why don't we get Joffroy, and he and I will do like a reunion. And I thought, well, that would have been an interesting idea. And he said, what happened was the, the newspaper contacted Joffroy, who is living outside of Montreal in a kind of a rural setting. And he told them he didn't want to do that. He didn't really want to bring up those memories anymore. I thought it was such a strange approach that, that okay, but it would have been good. I, I I guess it kind of symbolizes that kind of like you say, there 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 wasn't that kind of, widespread hardline support for that kind of activity. It was just in the air in the whole world at the time, but it passed really quickly in Montreal.
1: Yeah. What is that? I'm totally blanking on it now. It's that famous, rather, I can't believe I'm blanking on that documentary series, Canadian, the McKenna brothers did it. uh, And it was all on like uh, the bombing of Dresden and things like that.
2: Oh right!
1: (laughs) What is it called again? (laughs) I forget. (laughs) Yeah, I can't remember what it was. But yeah, yeah, the McKenna brother, and there's that that amazing uh, scene in the documentary where they have these old German guys who were in the Luftwaffe, who were like, who were like trying to shoot down Canadian Royal American Air Force pilots who were trying to bomb. Dresden and other places, and they were trying to shoot them down. And these guys are all like, you know, in their sixties you know, later on. And the McKenna brothers get them to all sit down and have beers and talk right. through translators. And they're laughing, patting each other on the back. Oh yeah, you were really good. Wow, you you got two <laughs> of my buddies, and like, and there's absolutely no uh, resentment. On either side, they're like you were doing. I understand why you were doing what you were doing. I understand you were just trying to defend your city, um, and you know I understand you know we were being run by Hitler and the Nazis, and you were trying to stop. But they—it's exactly the kind of scene that I guess. Uh, yeah, they, it's, they were it's trying like, to set up with the Gazette there. That would have been fantastic. <laughs>
2: I think it would have been really interesting. I think I think another thing about about Montreal itself of plays into this is um it, it was a little isolated on its own as well like one of the things that i find interesting is um the term anglo is only used in quebec when i i didn't realize it until i was in my 30s and i and i moved out that no one else in the world ever calls anyone an anglo it's not a thing anywhere else it's just it's just in montreal and then i realized it's because the anglos aren't a uh, a, a homogenous group it's made up of like even within the anglo community there's a difference between irish and scottish and english and then there's a whole bunch of other groups that that sort of form that that body that's that's known as anglo so it's already a little different than say the rest of canada like i always found it interesting that in, in quebec they use that expression roc the rest of canada and i thought like my family growing up in montreal did not think of themselves as the rest of canada and mm-hmm. almost really felt like I mean I guess it was there it was a big country and we all kind of heard about it but it wasn't like our my family and the people that I knew felt of themselves that they were Montrealers yeah. first. And Yeah that's they,
0: definitely
1: that's definitely like how I feel that's how my my children feel that's how like I feel um I feel kind of I, I feel like an like an alien in the rest of Canada. Like I I feel, I mean, it's not that I don't like it. I do, I do like it, but I don't feel very Canadian, and I feel I feel like an outsider um, in outside of Montreal and the rest of Quebec. And so my identity is is much more as a Montrealer, which I I felt kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess to some extent maybe alienated by that when I was younger, but then I've since traveled around the world to different places and met different people. And I've found out that actually there's a lot of places like that. And it's, uh, you know, New Yorkers are like that. New Yorkers don't feel feel much more like New Yorkers than they do like uh, Americans or people from New York State. Pe- people in Paris are the same way. People in London right. are the same way. I think if you're in a real city, like right. a real city, Uh, then and there's not there's, there's not that many real cities left but if you're in a real city then you do have this very rooted sense of of belonging and connection which comes through in your novels so clearly like you just get every little detail of like what what places feel like you you get all the streets right you have all the kind of the ways that you know, this slang that people have for different things. And you, you just get, and there's this feel like when you're describing, uh, Eddie driving, driving around and like what he's seeing and stuff like that. Like I can picture absolutely everything you're saying, like it's got, and it, it feels like the city is an extension of your body. You know, it's, like you're, it's, uh, it's really nice.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. I think, I think nostalgia plays a lot into that for me because once I had the distance and I was, and I was kind of, kind of one, you know, one reviewer described the books as a love letter to Montreal. When I first read that, I thought, are you kidding? It's nothing but bad guys and murderers and all kinds of stuff. And I realized, oh yeah, but it's true though. I, it is kind of a love letter to Montreal, but to different parts of Montreal than, than our kind of the the, the the kind of tourist traditional spots. And I, I, I remember I, one of my friends read it and he said to me that uh, no one is ever going to be nostalgic for LaSalle. (laughs) I said, yeah, but, but I really liked it, you know? And it it definitely, it definitely in that kind of seventies period, it it had a, and it's, I, you know, it had personality. And I, that's what I, what I thought about when I was, one of the reasons I I got interested in crime fiction to begin with. And the idea was I now I'm, I'm going to forget the quote because it's like, it's like one of the famous ones it's, Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler or something like that. But he said, um, well, probably Hammett that, the the detective can go into every neighborhood and that makes him a good guide. And I thought that was a great idea. So to get, if I wanted to to go all over Montreal, it was going to be like, you know, a cab driver or a cop. Uh, Uh because one of the things about, about Montreal, uh, was definitely, um, uh, neighborhoods have their own personalities and are you know sometimes a little isolated I mean I made some jokes in Blackrock where the American woman has come up from New York and she's rented an apartment in the East End and he says like you must be from out of town because English Montrealers don't go, don't move to the East End and and, uh, I, and and you know people not from Montreal said to me is that true and I said well you know it's not a hundred percent true but it's 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 uncommon anyway <laughs> and uh, and and so i I did want to get into more than just kind of downtown.
1: Yeah. I, no, you, so... you definitely you definitely got that. But the, the thing you said, just to your previous point about Anglo and, and Franco, I, I find that really, really fascinating, the way in which identity sort of it is so, people just fail to realize how elastic it is. So, you know, like, there's been a lot of books on this and you know, they talk about how uh, Italians, for instance, who were moving over to Canada, the United States, Argentina, Brazil, uh how they Italians you know pretty far into the 20th century thought of themselves first and foremost as from the town that they were or city they were from or at, or maybe the region you know they might say I'm Sicilian the the project of Italian nationalism uh was not complete. Well, to some extent, it's still not complete. You have a <laughs> right. strong separatist movement in the north <laughs> of Italy right now. It's so, got that in uh, common with Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the Italians largely became Italian outside of Italy, you yeah. know, in the places that they went to. And you see the Sopranos covers this beautifully right. when right. these mobsters go back to Italy and realize that uh, uh, they're, they're not as Italian as they think they are. <laughs> like, <laughs> they barely even speak <laughs> the language. Right. And of course, there's that wonderful book my my wife and I read last year. It was uh, it was all it was also about the troubles, and it was all about like investigating the murder of this single mother. I'm blanking on that. We heard it on Chris Hayes. Uh, interviewed the. Uh, the author, and then we, we read it, but he talks in there about this phenomenon of the plastic patties, you know, these right, Irish right. people from, like, Boston and Montreal who are all into their Irish identity and they go back to Ireland and cause a lot of problems <laughs> for the people who actually live there, you know?
2: Well, I think you're right, and it's a, it's really elastic, because I know that, like, when I was growing up in Montreal, um, there, was, there were a lot of uh, people with, kind of, Irish names, but it was not a part of our of our identity growing up. We never cared much about Ireland at all. There was no draw, uh, you know. Nobody wanted to go there. I mean, I guess part of it is because in the seventies and eighties, all the news stories from Ireland were just about car bombs and troubles, and it was it was awful. But also, we we had already made the move to being to being Montrealers first, and so the um, I guess like my. Maybe my parents' generation, my grandparents. My grandfather moved from Ireland to Montreal in 1920. So he was kind of a latecomer. <laughs> I guess already a pretty big Irish community. But he wasn't really uh, a joiner in that community. He lived in, Instead of living in the Point of Verdun, he lived in Villamard. And uh, I think our family joke was always because Verdun was dry at the any Tavern, so he couldn't possibly live there.
1: But um, It's it, so funny when you cross the aqueduct. Uh, into Villebarde, it's just like like nothing but taverns because suddenly it's legal.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's it's so right funny it's so so weird like right across, but but so we didn't have like a like a really a big sense of our Irishness. It wasn't it wasn't like a part of a part of our of our kind of family dynamic, and no, nobody else I knew was. I mean, occasionally it would come up with people, but then I found like later on in life that kind of became stronger for people, and I guess it was just another thing that that kind of happened around the world as people got more interested. And now of course we have like, you know, ancestry and places like that. So people are really fascinated with their, with their ancestry. But um, I, I think also you said about, about cities being real cities. I think one of the things that happened in, in Canada was Toronto, wasn't a real city. I mean, it kind of was a real city, but it was a small city and it was uh, kind of a small industrial city uh, in the in that, up until the late 60s, and and really up until the late 70s, when it got a big infusion of people from Montreal, and when immigration to Canada shifted, and Montreal stopped being the number one destination, it started to be Toronto. So through the the 80s and 90s, Toronto had a kind of a a really big identity crisis that it's maybe just now kind of coming out of. But what I think that meant was, a lot of our discussions, a lot of our academic discussions, and, and a lot of our Talks about literature and culture and all that kind of stuff in English Canada were happening in Toronto. And it wasn't a great place for that to be going on because there wasn't a great sense of identity to begin with. Because I've always been fascinated. We have all this talk about, you know, this Canadian identity crisis. Do we really have an identity? All that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, everywhere else I've been in Canada, they've got a really strong one. If you've ever been to like Newfoundland or Nova Scotia, there's no question of identity. If you've ever, even, you know, in Alberta and BC, but in that kind of, in that Toronto of that era, identity was really kind of up in the air because it was changing so much. And I think,
1: yeah, well, that I, I, like kind what, of clouded. I like what's yeah, I, I like what Stephen Marsh says about this. He, he says that uh, a lot of that kind of Canadian pose of, you know, we're so we're so cool because we're post-national and we're post and. We show our Canadianness by being just open to everybody and super multicultural, and we we're, we've moved beyond all of this he He like you, he says this is very much a, a toronto uh, a, a Toronto cultural product, and he said, you know it's to a large extent it's it's kind of a false modesty because it really what it does is it it centers a certain kind of um, kind of elite uh, white, uh, like like English speaking Canadian, as kind of the default. And you show your greatness by being able to let everybody have their dances and their food, and uh, look at how wonderful. And it's actually it's it's well, he says it's two things. Uh, one, it's kind of a, a way of masking the intense insecurity that. Toronto has about what exactly it is, uh, but then it's also like an assertion of superiority in a sneaky way because it's like yeah. i don't need i don't need what the little people need right but I, think, I will in, I will let the peasants have their you know their like their culture because they need that i've moved beyond it right? like, I, I think
2: you can really make a case for that you know and I, luckily i think i mean it's kind of another subject, but I think that's finally really changing in Toronto because. The voices that give identity to Toronto are different now, finally. And it's not just coming from those people. It's coming from actually a, a, a more broad-based place, which is good. But I think the other thing that it does, identity, like you say, is elastic and it's messy. And that's kind of one of the things that, that I, I really liked about doing the, kind of the research in Montreal was that it's a messy place. And I like that. It's not Mm a, it's not a super clean orderly. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff about it that, I mean, even, even the, uh, the, this, the response to the, to the, to the FLQ crisis, to the bombs and to all that stuff that went on, the response wasn't, it, it immediately wasn't to, you know, this kind of riot gear clamp down Montreal didn't have a riot squad until the Sir George Williams riot, they called it. And even then, like, like, when I was interviewing the retired cops, they would kind of roll their eyes at riot squads. Like you said, you know, there's a lot of people in the street. And it always, it's always had that kind of messiness about it that I think is, is really more representative of a big, diverse place than anything that's like super kind of clean and orderly can't really be. It's definitely got a hierarchy if it's that clean and orderly. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about because it totally fits into what's happening now with the kind of Black Lives Matter and with protests and all that stuff. The world that you describe in your novels is a world in which most of the cops police neighborhoods that they grew up in, that they know very, very well. And this was the case, you know, all over North America for the most part. And you had people would police, uh, people, cops would walk a beat. And then for a number of reasons, I, I, you probably know better than, than I do, actually, and so perhaps you can shed light on this. But I've, I've been told, because uh, I teach at John Abbott College, and they have a really big police tech program, and I, a lot of my colleagues are retired cops who teach there, and I've talked to them a lot about this stuff. And the, the consensus I seem to get from them and from other sources is that uh, they ran into big corruption problems and they realized that the the best one of the best ways to reform the system and to get rid of corruption was to stop having cops police neighborhoods that they grew up in because there's just too many long-term friends and family and childhood <laughs> friends and there's too much kind of uh there's just too much temptation to look the other way or maybe even get in, get involved a little bit yourself And so what they the situation we have now in Montreal, and I lived in Baltimore for a number of years, it's exactly the same thing in Baltimore. And we're seeing that it's the same thing in Minneapolis. It's the same thing in New York. Increasingly, the police are policing neighborhoods that they do not live in. They don't have any family there. They don't have any friends there. They are more like an occupying army. So right now in Montreal, most of the cops... Are from small town Quebec. Right. They're from outside of Montreal. They uh, they find Montreal. I you know they, I hear what they say you know to me right. when they're right. like you know, a lot of my former students and and they just they, they think you know oh, there's all these brown people here and they smell funny and they talk in weird languages and they they have this this very kind of small town mentality and so they see the. The people of Montreal, the people they're policing, especially in neighborhoods like, you know, Cote Neiges and stuff like that, right. they see them like, you know, they they will casually say "Call Cote Neiges, Cote you right. know, like and they they're really like really racist. But but racism really, I think, is just part of a general feeling of them not being a part of the neighborhoods that they're in. And I, I'm wondering, like, what do you think about that?
2: I, I agree. I mean, I see that. I see exactly that happening all all over the place as well. And I, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, those neighborhoods are messy and those people want order. I think we talk about law and order. And I think a lot of police think of it in terms of order rather than law. And we don't, maybe we don't really need to have so much order and a little messiness would be better. I I think the, the other, the other reason I was kind of really interested in this 1970s period is because it really is that I think it's kind of like you say, it is that turning point where we have to address this kind of, this kind of corruption, but I don't know if the the direction it went. And it's interesting because one of the things that Robert Cote said to me when he was a cop in the fifties and sixties, the thing to him that, that really changed policing was the introduction of the police car. And he said, before that police were on foot. And, uh, and then he said, once they were in cars and they didn't have to get out of them very often it put up a barrier and there was a real separation there. And um, when they were in cars, when they were on on foot, they also, it was before they had radios and there used to be police boxes on poles. And if there was a, a cop needed a backup, he'd have to go to that police box and phone it in. And a little while later, someone else would come and he said not having like having to do that meant that situations had to be kind of dealt with immediately. And, and at that time, they were mostly looking to um, uh, settle the situation down, de-escalate, although he didn't use the word de-escalate. But that's, that's what he felt the, was the kind of role of the beat pop. Uh and then, and then the police car came along and the police radio came along, and there was a, a real separation from the people, and it was easy to get lots of backup right away. So it, it, looking back on it, you think, oh, well, that's kind of a recipe for escalation. Like it yeah. would have the exact opposite effect of what you want. But at the time, I mean, I think in that kind of late 60s, there's riots in the streets, there's revolutions everywhere and, and people are kind of going crazy. And and I I now kind of feel that maybe, you know, in terms of, of long historic eras, that era, maybe is maybe finally coming to an end, which I think would be great, because I don't think we need military style police in the streets. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think it's helping anybody. And the whole the whole I think the whole concept of law and order has to get looked at in terms of how much order do we want imposed on us by someone else? It it's okay if 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 we're not so orderly, isn't it?
1: Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it no, goes. No, <laughs> I I think I I totally agree. That's I mean that's uh, Christian Gravener has been arguing this for years and I at first I thought he was Sort of off the wall, but I increasingly think he he's on to something. I mean, chris I know he's a he's a friend of yours, and uh, he he basically was saying that the problem is that crime has been going down consistently yeah. for for a couple of decades now, yeah. but police budgets keep going up, and we have more and more cops on the street. We have, and so right now it's just a classic situation of people have to justify their existence you know oh, i sure. see this i see this like all the time at work right if you if you get uh hr when i first started <laughs> teaching 20 years ago was just a couple people
0: right, right?
1: and they and there would be like a, a couple of different uh, departments that dealt with you know things like diversity and inclusion and students with uh disabilities and things like that those offices have just increased their staff and their budgets every single year it seems they get more money more staff meanwhile our class sizes are going up right. teachers salaries have been stagnant our library is underfunded but you know there there are these like these things within uh, whether it's the military with like the war on terror or with uh, law enforcement with the war on drugs uh with once once you have these uh these organizations that are in order to justify having more and more money and more personnel they need to kind of find problems to solve right and so christian gravener's um a- explanation is that a lot of our problems with law enforcement would be solved if we just um, had a hiring freeze at the police department and said we're not gonna we're gonna let people retire and not replace them and let's do that for for like say the next like five ten years and reduce the size of the police force uh, by a significant amount and that way because he said a lot of these problems it's not so much because of racism or because of you know, authoritarianism or any of these, he goes, sure, those things, you know, humans are humans. But uh, he said, most mainly, it's just that we've got a lot of cops that are looking for something to do.
2: (laughs) Right. You know, I think I I think I went down the same road you did, because when he first started talking about it, I thought the same thing. I thought, you know, it's crazy. But when you start to look into it, I think he's right. Like, crime has definitely gone down almost every some of it, I mean, was in that uh, bus boom and echo. It's just about some of it is just flat out demographics. Uh, Most most crimes, I mean, kind of street crime stuff, because if you want to talk about white collar crime, that kind of thing, it's a whole different area. But if we're looking at the kind of stuff like breaking into your house and stealing your car and that kind of stuff, um, most people who commit those kind of crimes are between, you know, 18 and 35 or something, maybe even less than that. Oh, it's
1: even, it's, even, it's, it's men specifically like almost all violent crime with uh, from right. like robbery to, to murder, to assault, to rape, almost all violent crime is committed by men between the ages of 15 and 30, I think. Right. Uh, and so a big explanation, you know, Steven Pinker talks about that in his book, uh, the better angels of our nature, why violence has declined. He says one of the reasons why you had a peak amount of violence in 1968 and in that period is that all these baby boomer right. men were like in the prime of the... <laughs> <laughs> right. And so as that, as that huge generation of young people started to move out of that window of, of violent, violent time then crime started going down and then all of these like different politicians and police chiefs and mayors right. said, Oh, well, crime's going down because of my policy. Exactly. Uh, but the thing is it was going down everywhere, regardless of your policy.
2: Right. And, and also I, I, like so many studies have shown, other social programs really reduce crime. So also in that kind of sixties, seventies, when, when, as it started to go down, there were a lot of social programs kind of in place because we used to actually like them. And I mean, it's never been, it's, it's never been a great time to be a sociologist or a social worker. You don't really get any of the kind of respect that cops get, or at least that cops demand they get. But now I think people were starting to realize a little less investment in policing, a little more investment in social programs will get us the results we want because the results we want are less crime, not, you know, more order. And that seems to be the, the emphasis is all on that. I think that's one of the issues here that's, is that just something as simple as what is the purpose of the police force. And it's kind of one of the things that, that I really was looking into in, in, the, in the novels because when I was writing crime fiction, one of the things I met other crime writers and that kind of stuff, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm never going to write a serial killer novel, man. Those things are everywhere. and I'm just tired of serial killers. It's all I ever see. And then I I was doing the the looking into maybe writing about the October Crisis, and I found out about the serial killer in Montreal at that time. And I thought, well, now I am interested because what I but what I was really interested in was the fact that it got no press. I, I realized it was the term serial killer was brand new, and that whole thing was it was a different era. But what really got me, I think, was when I when I did the research, there was and there was nothing. Really, almost nothing about this guy in Montreal at that time. Uh, but I did find uh, it was a British TV show, a kind of a documentary series, and one of their episodes was about this guy in Montreal uh, who was who's killing young women. And um, a, a line in the in the documentary was somebody talking about the time, and they said he had targeted women in the downtown core, and he met some at nightclubs, and so there was a virtual curfew and the clubs were empty and young women were not going out. And my first reaction was, I don't believe that because if (laughs) there was a period in Montreal where the nightclubs were all closed and no one was going out, we'd still be talking about it all the time. Yeah. That dark era. And so I, the first person I spoke to about that was my sister. Who's she's 10 years older than I am. So in 1970, she was in, and she was 20, she was 21 and she was living downtown well, she was living on Sherbrooke Street on the corner of Claremont. You probably know the apartment building, that kind of angled door in the front.
1: That's <laughs> like amazing. Grocery- I, one a- of my first apartments was on <laughs> Sherbrooke between Claremont and Gray. Yes, yeah. right above the I mean, Korean Dep. <laughs> you know, there's a. There, I think it's it's the Claremont or something like that. The yeah. bar Yeah. yeah. Wow, your sister lived right there.
2: So she was living there, but she was working downtown. She was she was uh like a receptionist in an office building. And I, and she was going out a lot. And I said to her, you know, what about this curfew? And she said, never heard of it. And I said, well, what about this guy who was this vampire killer who was killing young women? She said, I never heard of it. So then she called a bunch of her friends from that time. Cause now we have Facebook and we're all reconnected. And she called me back and said, no one has any memory of this at all. And I couldn't, I could find nothing about it in the newspapers or anything. I found one tiny article that said the police had asked some TV show at the time if, if people had seen anything, and that was the only thing I saw about it and so as I started to do more research on that, what I realized of course was that the entire police force was on the on the terrorist activity because when it comes to that like we can spare no expense they were calling in people you know other police forces they were, everybody's working overtime that they, they put together actually they actually called it. The cat squad, it was the combined anti-terrorism squad. So it was a bunch of police forces, the, the provincial police, it had some mounties on it. Meanwhile, there was guys working in the homicide squad saying, you know, this guy's killed a woman every few months. I think we should try and stop him. And they really got nothing. So I thought, well, now that's a story. That's, that's something that we should be talking about, is that all of our priorities here seem to be, I mean, I get it. People were setting off bombs. It was a big deal, but they phoned them in. They told them where they were. Up yeah. until that, up until the kidnapping in October, it was definitely simmering, and people were saying, "Well, I think they should be doing something about this." But they probably shouldn't have left everything else aside. And I, and I thought, well, this is if those victims hadn't. I mean, and there's a, then there's the whole thing about the victims were young women, and at the, even even at the time when they were, when I the the few articles that I found about it. You can really see where they were. The attitude towards the victims was that it must have been their fault. They were they were loose women. They were hippies. They were. I mean, you know, they were they were they were playing that up as much as they could, rather than you know this should be our top priority.
1: Yeah. No, that is uh, that. I mean, that's anytime you study. Well, you you've studied history a lot. You know this. Every time you really get into the weeds in any historical period you find that uh, what people were thinking about at the time is is often you know more narrow concerns based on their town or their neighborhood or or their ethnic group or their religious group or something like a they weren't necessarily thinking about the big kind of uh what the historian I mean one of the strange things about 2020 and but this period we're living in right now is that we are increasingly moving towards a kind of mass g- culture where like everybody's talking about trump or black right. lives matter or like beyonce so we, we actually are moving towards a kind of a mass culture where it seems like there's there's more of a hive mind right but but back the the world that you're describing in your montreal trilogy is A world that still sort of existed when I was a kid. And that's that was a much smaller world. Like I I knew people, you probably met lots of people like this too. I met people in Verdun when I was growing up, and the point who had like had not left Verdun once in over a decade. Right. Like they they lived these like lives that were so kind of rooted in like a couple, you know, 10 square blocks. And they had everything. And I remember so clearly going as a a little kid with my friends because I wanted to get Converse high tops. And they the only place that, there was a place called Salamander Shoes that was on uh, saint Ana Boulevard. And they sold them really cheap. And it was such a weird place. It was like, it was up around, uh, it was somewhere around like a shell... And so but and it was a, the place was an absolute mess. There were like just shoes all over the place, like it looked like a, a hoarder's house that but they were into it, but they were hoarding converse shoes, and the guy the owner was this huge, fat guy who sat on this like small chair that looked you just like that 's gonna break right and it just never broke uh but uh but to, in order to get there, I had to get on the Eglise Metro in Verdun right take it to saint uh, metro station, get out, walk up the hill, walk up saint to the place. And I remember we would go as like a pack and there would be all these like older people in Verdun who would say, oh, don't go. They, they described it as <laughs> Montreal. Right, like, right. Don't go to Montreal because there's all sorts of crazy freaks up there and junkies right. and they're like, they're, but they saw Montreal as a foreign country. Yeah, yeah, for it's sure. Just it's so completely I, wild, right?
2: I know the feeling exactly. When I the other when we got old enough to kind of go to bars, what I found really interesting was people from Greenfield Park would all go to the same bar, so yep. you'd see all the same people that you saw, but now we were downtown. Yeah. <laughs> so and and it was uh, very much like that in that in that like you say, like the 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 big world events were stuff that you know we kind of saw on TV, and it was a foreign thing, and it happened over there, and it was really weird. And now it it is I, I I'm hopeful about some of this stuff because what we're starting to talk about now are the similarities and I think for most of my life and I think you know that was like it was a big deal about about you know a big part of the Quebecois nationalism was about what made it different from other places in the world and and so it was very much a, a common idea everywhere to to look for the differences that between people, groups of people and things like that. And I think it was probably a stage we needed to pass through, but I am I, encouraged now by what we're looking at is the similarities between things. So whether there's, you know, whether it's, whether it's Baltimore, you know, or Barcelona, we're seeing some similarities in the structure that isn't working and we'd like to fix those. And yeah. that, I think you're right. That, that kind of kind of kind of global personality might be more helpful than the, the kind of like, although on the other hand, like, like um, I was, I was pretty shocked to discover a little while ago that when the Berlin wall came down, there were a dozen border walls in the world. And now there are 75.
1: Yeah. Gwyn Dyer has been writing on this for a long time. and It's really, I mean,
2: that's one of the things that I said about about Montreal that made it really kind of Kind of unique. Another writer I know, an Irish guy, Stuart Neville, has written some some really good books set in, in mostly in Belfast. And uh, he talks about when he was a teenager and he's going into, into Belfast to go to a record store because he wants to buy the new album. He has to pass through the, they didn't call it a wall, it was a fence, but it was, a, it was essentially a wall through Belfast. And he asked me if there was anything like that in Montreal. And I said, no. And then I thought the closest thing I could come to for that would be on that. Kind of on the east side of of TMR.
1: Yeah, you talk about that in the third the third <laughs> yeah, novel, so, one of those to the other. Because
2: so, because yeah. uh, after Stuart brought it up, I thought, well, there must be something like that in Montreal, and then I came up with that. And I thought, well, I got to put something about that in the book. But that's the closest I could come to with with uh, uh, you know, because like, one of the things about about and I'm not sure what it was like to be 25 years old in 1970, but I know when I was in in the in the late 70s. Um, there wasn't an area, there was, there was no part of Montreal that I thought if I ended up there late at night by myself, it would be dangerous because of who I am. Like, I, like there's no part of the furthest depths of whatever East End Montreal that, that just because I'm Anglo would be an issue. And I never felt that. And then I started to realize, but man, if you're in, if you're in other cities that are really divided and you're from the other group, just being that makes a big difference. And I never felt that in Montreal.
1: Well, I mean I I'm I I think like about 10 years 10 years younger than you or something like that about that. But I definitely the only neighborhood that I felt was like that growing up was the Point. <laughs> right. And I knew I knew uh, I knew a number of people uh who got who got bricked right. just just for walking through the Point and being not from there and being not recognized and they got jumped and they got like, you know, smashed in the face with bricks. My friend Grant got stabbed at Charlevoix Metro. Just, you know, once again, uh, him and his friend got stabbed like just because they were the, the only neighborhood in all of Montreal where I felt, you know, and, and little Burgundy was supposed to be kind of dangerous. And definitely there were some like people in little Burgundy that, uh, You know, could could use violence readily if necessary, but um, but I didn't. I never felt unsafe in Little Burgundy ever. Uh, But but the point definitely had the reputation as being, you know, a neighborhood that you know where you could be jumped just because you weren't from there.
2: Yeah, you know what? It's I did I did try and deal with that a little bit about how. uh, I mean, I tried to make the character of Eddie Doherty. I uh, really in between all the cultures, you know, with a kind of a French mother and an English father. And then he was sort of from the point, but they moved out of the point. So he knew those people, but he didn't really know those people. And and it's true. Like the point is definitely that kind of, kind of old. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. It's, I mean, one of my friends, one of my closest friends is from, was from the point, although we met in LaSalle and he was living in LaSalle and, and uh, once in a while I, I, I saw would see a a real estate listing for a million dollar condo in the point, and I would send it to him. And just so he would laugh and say, who could possibly spend a million dollars to live in the point? I said, well, <laughs> I guess it's getting gentrified too. I don't know. It's funny. Cause he grew up on a street in the point called fortune Avenue. And he said, yeah. hey, was that, was that done intentionally just to piss people off to call it that?
1: Yeah. I, like, I, I just found the, it was so eerie reading like, because well, just amazing. Cause my, my first serious girlfriend was, uh, almost like it's very similar to Eddie Doherty like her except the the gender roles were were switched so instead of having a francophone from the maritimes as a mother she had a francophone from the maritimes as her father right and her uh, her mom was from the point going back like a couple of generations but they were like old school english pointers with who are didn't you know didn't speak any french uh most of them had like you know at most like you know grade eight education uh not a lot of teeth you know very like lived very poor uh english people from uh from the point and that was like and her her parents kind of they they met and they moved to Lasalle, and they lived right. on Tyree Street, which right. you describe. I've never, I don't think Terry Street has ever been mentioned in any <laughs> piece of fiction ever in the world, except for your novels. Uh, but she lived on Terry Street, and um, and she very much uh, encapsulated a lot of the contradictions in the that you describe in Eddie. But uh, but I also liked the fact that Eddie, you describe him. In a, he's not an idealized cop at all. He's he's very I mean he's he's a good guy and he's got like a lot of decent impulses, but you also uh which I, I liked because a lot of fiction writers don't do this when they're talking about cops. You talk about how, yeah, you know, he went into the police force to some extent because he's he was picked on as a kid in the point and he's got a chip on his shoulder from from his youth and uh and he, he's You know, he's kind of a a thug, you know, Judy describes him, says like, you know, you're a you're a thug and he he smacks people around and he like takes pleasure in sort of uh, lording his authority over people who beat him up when he was a kid. And I mean, how do you how did you navigate that stuff?
2: (laughs) Well <laughs> yeah. this is the part where I guess I say it's that part's not so much based on my brother, but I think there is like some of my brother in there for sure um and there's there's it's it's uh, because i I guess I think it needs to be navigated i think I think you're right like there's a lot of i mean i've been I've been talking about this a little bit lately because I've got a lot of friends who write you know crime fiction a lot of it has cops in it I didn't really get into it to write about cops this Eddie Doherty was kind of the first time i I made it really like about a cop, but it it's I said, if, if every one of us is writing about the lone exception on the police force, that actually says what we really feel about police forces, doesn't it? And I think, you know, maybe if you were doing a kind of a history of it, you could probably chart how this kind of stuff changed uh, over, over time. And, and somehow the, like the bond between, I don't know, Hollywood and cops became way too tight for me. And I think it's like, I, like, I know there's. It's it's like there's just too many stories that are from the from the cop point of view, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do it because I wanted to do this whole story about the. I wanted to get all those neighborhoods of Montreal, and I wanted it to be, and I did kind of want it to be, uh, like like maybe a little bit kind of a kind of a mainstream commercial book. I didn't want it to be, you know, I I wanted the the the, the same kind of kind of audience that read mystery novels to read this one, but I did want to put stuff in it that would that would maybe. um, be a little bit different, like that. I wanted him to at least think about the fact that 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 this is what he's doing, and at, to at least ha- at least um, talk about it a little bit and question it. That because I do think that that period, um, in the in the kind of late '60s, when that, you know like like Tarantino was talking about when the when the bloom went off that rose and and it's it's not being about, hate Ashbury and peace and love, and it started to be. You know definitely there was manson murders but it also seems like just like is happening now that social unrest was used as an opportunity for people who want there to be much more order in the world to step in and so i wanted to to see how i i didn't realize it was going to happen now but I, I i could see in retrospect that it had happened in the 70s where the, the kind of, uh, like you say, the, the the budgets were were started to go up and everybody's, as crime started to go down, a lot of credit was given to that kind of stuff. And police forces themselves, without having much public discussion, did start to militarize and did start to turn into, now it's not just a policeman in a car, it's a car with tinted windows and it's all black. And like, it's really gone that that direction. And I thought, this is a little bit of the turning point where it where it started to do that. So I I thought it would be like it, like it would give it a little more meat if we could talk about those kind of things in it. And then you could also have like some of the older cops who could who could see what's coming, and they're not crazy about it. But you see where it's sort of it's just in a zeitgeist, and it's just kind of happening. And I think it 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 sort of took on a life of its own. So I I just thought it would be a good idea to have at least have some discussion about it in there
1: yeah no it was fantastic i mean there there were a number of points where i just i i thought you know as i'm reading through the novels i thought okay i you know you would make a decision of what to do with the character and i thought oh that is such a good move Like, like for instance in the hands of anybody else pretty much writing a crime writer eddie doherty would have been made he would have made detective by the end of black rock and yeah. i love the fact that he he doesn't right, right. And he doesn't and then and then he has to like by the third novel he's actually starting to do like a little bit of introspection like why is it that i'm never making <laughs> the next promotion like maybe there's maybe i've i'm a little bit of a one trick pony you know like like why is right. it that i i have like one way of getting answers out of people one way of policing and i'm i'm not very flexible i don't know how to do other stuff and maybe my superiors can see that you know maybe it's maybe it's not just because i'm like an anglo maybe it's not just that they're discriminating against me like maybe it's uh, because i'm you know not the best cop in the world you know like and it's right uh, yeah maybe it's, it's me I, yeah maybe, <laughs> which i really liked because uh you know I, I read the i just finished yesterday the um maria noir the collection oh, yeah. of short stories yeah. that you edited yeah and there's one short story i can't remember who the author was uh, the one that's set in the plateau in like 1951 Oh um, yeah. The little girl who goes to Howard Schreier, yeah. You see, that is that is more typical of the genre, right? So right. The, the detective is uh he's he's a Jew on the Montreal Police Force, which right. is makes him right off the bat uh, very, very exceptional. He's they right. point out the fact that he's the only detective on Jewish detective on the force. He's multilingual, he's like and that's usually the kind of main character you get in this genre and and it's so obviously a main character that somebody who just did an mfa can relate to most (laughs) most likely oh yeah he's sort of intellectual sort of introspective kind of jewish oh that's great uh he's like multilingual yeah he kind of looks like me but a cop you know Right. Uh, what's nice about Eddie Dory is that he doesn't look like me. He's a cop. Right. Like he looks right. like actually a cop. He like right. uh, he has the the personality, the the drives, the the virtues, the vices of a cop. You know? The only the only thing that that didn't uh, that I thought was I thought for sure he was going to hook up with <laughs> uh, the cop from uh, from Longue uh, because one of the things that my my former students tell me all the time is uh, and this is you know the stats bear this out that law enforcement has uh, one of the highest rates of infidelity of any profession right right it's, uh, they have really high rates of like de- spousal abuse uh, child abuse and they have very high divorce rates and um, infidelity rates it's like it's quite it's quite you know amazing um, yeah apparently apparently this is you know there's been all sorts of explanations put in for for this i mean the it seems to be that uh, a lot of it is just opportunity and the fact that you're working weird hours often spending a great deal of time right, right with other people and usually it's the kind of job where like um you increasingly feel like nobody else understands me except for another cop you know so
2: right yeah yeah i mean it's it's funny i used to work on movie sets and they, they were kind of like that for six or eight weeks it's like somebody called it summer camp for adults because it's like this you're, you're together all the time and 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 then and there's all kinds of relationships like that people were, <laughs> were sleeping around all over the place but i thought like <clears throat> i i, I <laughs> it's funny like I, I didn't want to get like too too literary with the books because you're right. Like I did want I did want Eddie to be not that kind of of uh, of character. Um, but when I was writing one or the other, it was it was like maybe although it, it's it's like maybe the one that was like maybe mostly about English and French. And I knew that you know I was going to put in a, sort of a cop who's in some ways the opposite of Eddie. She's the woman. She's French. But they one thing they've got in common is both their police forces have kind of shunted them off to the side,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: and so and they've and they're both also uh, uh, pretty um, determined that they wanna they wanna work they wanna find out what happened to those kids on the bridge, and um, so I, I guess <laughs> I guess I had enough plates in the air I didn't want to add an affair in, that in there but I also had this idea that. I I like both those characters. I like Eddie and I like her and I, and I, and they're both in relationships and I kind of, maybe, maybe I just, I don't know if I chickened out or what, but I really thought that, um, you know, one of the things was I, one of the things that I really wanted and I, and I, I don't usually know how a book is going to end when I start it because I find that that actually makes it harder to write because it's less fun
1: because
2: not discovering stuff as you go. But I did know when I started one or the other, that. I, I wanted that scene where he goes to her house on the South Shore in the end and the PQ have won the election and she's really happy.
1: And yeah, her she's husband, tipsy and they're like yeah. they're so happy. Uh...
2: <laughs> and her husband is really happy. And they're and it's like a it's a it's a big it's a happy day for them and it's a celebration. And and I and I knew from the beginning that like he always does, like you say, Eddie is like a thug stomping in on someone's party and saying, Okay. And so I, I, I kind of knew that it was going to go to there, but I wanted, I wanted that to be, um, kind of a celebration for, for that moment, because you know it's like it's weird because I think um, all of the, you know, the political stuff that went on in Quebec, the fact that it didn't kind of go bad, so to speak, it didn't become Belfast and that kind of stuff. A, a lot of that is to the credit of Rene Levesque and the kind of leadership that he brought. So I, I didn't want that moment to be some Anglo guy moaning about it. Cause man, I heard plenty of that. Yeah. But, but I, so I, I kind of didn't want to, I, I, I guess I didn't want to, I don't know, but maybe who knows if I was Adrian McKinsey and I wrote more books where it would go.
1: Well, I think this would make such a fantastic uh, Netflix series. Oh, like it would really? make, it would make a real, well, cause you know, uh, blood money did well, right? Which yeah, is all. Yeah, which is all, yeah. and that that did well. And blood money is, uh, you know, not not half as good as as this. <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously, like in terms of story and everything, and kind of, it's yeah. uh, this is way way better. I mean, have you have you considered that if you sort of put your
2: yeah, 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 I've been approached. I mean, there's 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 been a couple of uh, of, of producers uh, who've you know kind of kind of tried to to get something going. And I think one of the things is because it's a period piece uh, on the one hand, it's um, uh, I don't know, people think it might, I guess it's kind of expensive. You need old cars and stuff. But on the other hand uh, it it is, it is kind of a moment in history. So I'm, I think I'm always optimistic that maybe something will happen with it because I do think it's a, it's a cool time period. And I think um, it's, it's oddly uh, maybe relevant again.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, the the kind of the movie industry, TV in Montreal is is huge um, as it, you know, as it is in in, in Toronto and Vancouver as well. But because uh, there's just so much infrastructure here and right. it's all set up and they have, you know, it, I, I just think it would make a fantastic Netflix series. It'd be so, so. And then it, it, you, you could sort of maybe take the story forward a little bit and even go in to like the biker wars and going to, like you know later on you know it would just be it'd be really really neat there, there's all these like little details uh as like for instance you know eddie's a uh, girlfriend who like her parents you know from on, on, on the west island in point claire and her parents like break up and her dad is like trying to relive his lost youth and he's like right. dressing in sport coats and hitting on like 20 year olds and Crescent street bars and trying to score Coke. And mom is like reading all the self-help literature and all. just absolutely like hilarious. Like the, those details, I mean, is that just stuff that you remember from when you were a kid or like, how did you? Yeah, for
2: sure. I mean, I remember, I mean, cause you know, I, I was kind of a nerdy bookish kid and I remember the bookstores were full of, I'm okay. You're okay. And uh, all, I mean, there's just so many of them, all in that yeah. paperback rack kind of with the same cover, yeah. <laughs> that same kind of cartoony font. And, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I remember in, uh, oh, one of my friends first, the the first time I I heard the expression, he referred to a, a some bar that had gone upscale a little bit, and he called it a fern bar. I fit in there now. He said, but middle aged guys and plants. <laughs> yeah, I, and I could picture it now. You know, like, it wasn't it wasn't a whole era of that. Um, I don't know, pseudo sophistication or whatever it was. But you can see it's like that. the the the. I mean, I guess the rainbow didn't really get didn't really go that way, but that a lot of those bars, all those questions street bars went from kind of, you know, you could see the progression from, from fifties jazz clubs to sixties coffee houses to seventies singles bars. And, um, and that was the seventies, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you remember, I, I remember this from when I was a, a teenager in my early twenties in Montreal, one of my big, you know, you said that when people would go out from Greenfield Park, they would all go to like the same two places. So it was basically, you know, they transplanted. transplant. It's like those beaches in in Wildwood yeah. in Florida where everybody exactly. speaks French because it's just yeah. they've just transplanted their culture to a different location. And yeah. that, that's still very much the case um, here in Montreal. But what, what I remember being just blown away by when I was a teenager in early twenties, you know, into the bar scene, the club scene a lot was at first, when I went out as a kid from an Anglo kid from Verdun, we would go to Bishop and Crescent and we would go to like all the usual places. And I remember the, just part of the, of a standard Friday night, Saturday night was a couple of fights would break out on the dance floor uh, and then at, when the bars let out, there would be like a bunch of fights and brawls. And, you know, they would have for a, a typical place like Sir Winston Churchill pub, which you mentioned in the novels, yeah. uh, they would have a team of, you know, four or five huge bouncers that were working on a Friday or Saturday night. And so I just thought that was normal. Right? <laughs> but then I got like a I had a, a French girlfriend for a while. And I started going out to, like, to French bars and clubs on Saint-Denis and on, uh, on Saint-Aran, on different... I started going to, like, to French bars and clubs. And I was completely struck <laughs> by the fact that you could have a huge club, three floors, totally packed, people drinking all night, and they would have zero bouncers. Yeah. And they would have no fights, like absolutely no fights. And then I started, you know, I started going to like like a lot of French parties, and same thing. Like, you know, it'd be a bunch of teenagers, hormone-pumped teenagers who are intoxicated, but it was absolutely night and day. There was just like almost almost no violence. And when there was violence, it was it was seen as being completely. Um, it was definitely not cool. Right. It was seen right. as being disgusting. Like right. I remember, there was this one. Uh, there was one exception where a guy um, like got really, really drunk and got into like uh, an argument. You know, with another guy because he thought he was looking at his girlfriend and he right. pushed him a bit and he hit him once. and this is a, in, a, in a French context. That guy, uh, it, it was as if he had like passed out at a party on right. a couch and right. pissed himself <laughs> and everybody <laughs> saw that he pissed himself or took like a you know shit himself something really it was viewed as being disgusting like he was yeah. not invited to any parties anymore yeah. it was absolutely whereas like in the sort of Southwest context of yeah. the point in Verdun and LaSalle <laughs> yeah. getting into fights was just was part of uh part of young life like i yeah totally it was normal ju- totally normal normalized uh even kind of cool like yeah. you had to like it was i think mean, when did well first of all was that your experience and when did that happen because that's an actual real english french and william weintraub in his book city unique he absolutely says that this has been the case for a long time that yeah, the southwest yeah. was known that one of the stereotypes about anglos is that they're primitive savage and violent. <laughs> right? I think he's really talking about Irish anglos. But <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I think <laughs> Yeah. No, I absolutely. My my friend, I don't know if you ever took a class with him when you were at Concordia, but Fred Bodie? No. Did you ever take a class with him? No. Uh, he's he was in the office right next to Steve Scheinberg, actually. Oh yeah, in the history department. But he's a he's a good friend of mine, and I took a lot of classes with him. But he, I remember him showing me all the stats on on what uh, Irish immigration did. He he showed me like all these small towns in you know New England or right. in uh, Georgia or different places, and he showed me like what the murder. How many people were murdered in these small towns uh, for, you know, huge stretches of time for like 40 years? And they would have like you know, one murder every four years, five years, uh, and they would have waves of immigration from different places. Uh, it wouldn't change the crime rate at all. As soon as you had Irish immigration in any significant numbers to any place, it, it's just unmistakable. Like there would suddenly be like a hundred murders in that place, there would right. be more murders in like one year uh, than there were, you know, there had been in like the previous fifty years. Like, and and so he said, you know, all the anti-Irish sentiment that you found uh, in the mid-nineteenth century, all the way up until the early twentieth century, uh, the anti-Irish sentiment. We often forget that that's because like they did just bring this incredibly violent brawling culture, which was uh, shocking to a lot. Well, of
2: people. I mean, you know, it is the Hatfields and McCoys.
1: <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I mean, that whole, that whole um, Appalachian American um, uh, uh, rivalry, that whole feud that went on, it's, it's, that's, Irish America right there. Now, my buddy Adrian McKinkey will tell you, it's not really Irish, it's Scots-Irish. It's really um, the, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's my family heritage. It's the people who were thrown out of Scotland and came to Ireland, and then they were thrown out of Ireland and came to America. And so, you know, they're kind of a morose, brawling type.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. But
2: but that, and then, so a lot of the that part of the U.S., that's really the, the settlement is more, Scots, Irish, and Irish. One of the things about Montreal that I found interesting was um, there wasn't, like, like like even in the point, like, there wasn't a Protestant-Catholic schism. It was English-French. But there were both, there were Protestant and Catholic Anglos in there. There's a, you know, a United Church and a big Catholic church and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's interesting how, like you say, it's elastic. Now, that's not the issue anymore. We have this other issue now. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so it it I I do find that kind of identity stuff really fascinating the way the way every person is made up of a whole bunch of different things, but everybody prioritizes it differently. So, you know, this now I'm I'm this, but you know, I could also be something else. Uh so a lot of times it's the way you prioritize it yourself is different than uh the, the way that it's it's pushed onto you, you know, so that you know, like every you know, everybody from a from a, a visible minority The majority looks at them as that minority, but they themselves are made up of a lot of things and don't always think of themselves that like that. And I find that that kind of stuff for characterization is in, in, in novel writing is really, it's, it's fascinating and it's funny, but it's kind of tricky because, you know, we we've now also got this issue uh, where um, there's, there's all, you know, there's a, there's a, I, I, I would say a positive effort to diversify the characters that we're putting in in fiction but it's early stages and we're clumsy and so people are are repeating the same kind of stereotypes over and over again as that you know to show that it's diverse so we've got you know like like the the number of middle-aged men who wrote the kick-ass girl and they created that whole kind of manic pixie whatever they call it so that to show that oh no i have strong female characters too but they, they so it, <laughs> it but it's a it's still it's still very much a, a early on work in progress. I mean, I remember when I was at Concordia and I was taking creative writing classes and I had some very good ones. with uh, I had Gary Geddes was a great teacher there and I had some other ones who were really good. And and But it, the creative writing classes tend to be a discussion around the table. So you get a little bit of input from the professor and then you get a lot of input from your classmates. So one of the things I really liked about Concordia was the, the the classes I took were usually in the evening, and I, I didn't start Concordia until I was 25, and I was never the oldest person in the class, or always a, a pretty, you know, into their 30s and 40s, people taking creative writing classes because they're interested in that. So the discussions were always pretty good, but it always came down to, you know, when you first start writing, you're not very good at it, and you're you're trying to find your way. So the toughest thing to do is write a character that's not like yourself, but it's all you really want to do when you're starting, because it's you can't show that much of yourself on the page. You're too vulnerable for that. So we mm-hmm. always had these really good discussions about, you know, you know, if if I'm starting out, my female characters aren't very good, and I and I, you know, always really wanted to to. What it means is, you know, you you, you often present these kind of idealized characters, and I was really conscious of that in in writing, especially in these with with these Montreal books where the, the it seemed like I mean it was kind of a time of revolution there was all this social revolution for sure and and to try and kind of get that across through the characters, there would have to be you know a, a fairly diverse group of characters but at the same time they can't you know you've got to really avoid that kind of tokenism stuff where you know that yeah one. this is this is the Haitian character he's going to represent all Haitians and he's going to be like this and oh, you know, you can't, and and we're always nervous about, about making a flawed minority character because, you know, that, and, and so there's, there's all that kind of stuff. So I found that as a, as a setting, that, that period of Montreal, um, there was, there was still a feeling left over from Expo, I think, that, that, you know, it had played host to the world. And the idea that, you know, like you were saying earlier about, you know, your neighborhood is really defines your, existence when you're young and that's that's it Then you start to get it more into the world and look around and i think that happened on a like on a city-wide scale with montreal with with expo The the city really started to to look at the whole rest of the world so when when i was looking at at writing a book in that kind of setting there there were characters that that were really local to their neighborhoods but there were other characters that were really open to the world so i i thought it really made a It was a a a fun but pretty messy setting.
1: Yeah, well, well, I liked also the way you. I mean, this is in the background, and you, you sort of you gesture toward it often. But identity is is elastic and strange everywhere. But in Montreal, it is especially weird because uh, you know you, you hear these like high profile cases of these like. Uh, member of the neo-Nazi party in Austria who finds out that he's actually you know part Jewish and yeah. you, you, <laughs> this like member of the KKK or second finds out he's like got like a black grandmother or something like that and you know there's there's big cases like that but in in Montreal the language politics from a historical perspective are just you know incredibly incredibly bizarre because here you have most of most of the francophones that came over to new france came from one particular part of france of north uh northwestern france and this was an area that had very recently been subdued by the french king and had like they had gone in there were you know there were about about a dozen main languages spoken in what is now France, and with different literatures and different everything they went uh, and they aggressively there's a wonderful well horrible but it's a wonderful book uh, by David Bell on this, uh, which is like all on the founding of the French nation state and it was like the first uh, modern nation state and they because it was very centralized and they burned books. They banned the speaking of other languages. And so French was imposed on this place by force, by like a colonizing, you know, imperial power. Right. And so those people had very recently had their culture and language stolen. And so they, those people came over and those are the, the French settlers to, to new France. And then most of the kind of the, at the Anglophone English speaking people who ended up here are like your ancestors. They're Irish or they who also like had their, a lot of their culture and their language kind of squashed by a, another power, the English. Right. And so if, if the ancestors could somehow like butt in, you know, if the ghosts <laughs> could speak when people okay. are arguing about language politics I think that would be a truly fascinating conversation because they would say, here you have these people, I, you know, defending the French language. And this is like, you know, this is like the descendants of Jews fighting for like that. And then you have like Irish Guys, on CJD and the Gazette who are like you know ang- you know angry phones like these right right super Anglo English yeah I'm gonna speak like their ancestors are also turning rolling over in their graves saying like what sure. are you talking you're you're seriously you're like defending the language of the people that was yeah, imposed absolutely. on us so you have these two sort of weird groups yeah. that are identifying <clears throat> under the banner of English and French when they're almost all the descendants of people who were screwed over by the english and the french.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a I wacky mean,
1: what a wacky place. <laughs> it's
2: very very wacky. <laughs> and and so, you know, so one of the reasons it it lends itself to the novel, I think, to the whole idea of the novel is because it's got so many layers like that. And and one of the things is so the language then is really it's really the signifier. And then the culture is really you know, the signified. And that brings up a a whole other issue over, because, you know, in, in in that kind of post-war, in the, in that kind of, you know, 1960s and 70s world, uh, it went from the, the main driver of culture went from being religion to being language, but really we're still talking about, you know, it's, it's, uh, a, a division. I, I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating that, um, also, again, I, I think I'm not sure about this, but I would say that there is even a break in in Quebec between Montreal and the rest of Quebec, like there
1: is between the rest of Canada. Absolutely,
2: it, it, it really. I mean, it really is an island in every sense of the word.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and well, that's. I mean, there's there has been for quite some time a city-state movement, and right. this is it is picking up steam. I think it's happening kind of. All over the world, I, I see that you you have this situation where Toronto feels like it is constantly being kind of neglected, and you know Toronto pays the bills for Ontario, but the province does not treat Toronto well at all, right? And uh, you know Montreal pays, keeps the lights on in Quebec, but we get uh, we get totally you know constantly. Uh, you know told off and you know underfunded right. and and right. you see this is happening all over the world yeah right? there yeah. 's big cities that uh that produce all the the wealth the money the culture uh but it goes to in the states you 're seeing this right now, like with you know the 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 coastals the the coastal cities um pay pretty much all of the taxes they create the new technologies but because of the electoral college and stuff like that they uh they don't have like a lot of say in government right so i i wonder what's gonna happen with that i mean i I don't know you seem to be more optimistic about it than i am i i think actually what's what we're probably moving towards is much more like the world that you describe in your trilogy where people are going to go are returning to smaller identities to identities like of, of a city or a smaller group. Like I think the, the idea of like being a global citizen or, or even being like an American or a Canadian or a a, a Brit, I think those big, big umbrella identities are losing their gravitational pull.
2: Yeah, I think so too. I, I, I think it's, I mean, it just gets too big and it's too unwieldy, and you can't, like, it's, I mean, it is the Canadian discussion that we've always had what is a Canadian? And we think, well, you know, and there's that great quote from Pierre Trudeau about, you know, the search for an ideal Canadian is silly. Like, like, it's, there's no, there's not, like, I forget in the quote, he says something, he makes a comparison to, like, the all American boy or girl. The concept of an all Canadian boy or girl is, it's not, it's never gonna work here. And I think, you know, in, in a little bit, he was like, maybe a little bit ahead of his time on that, but I think, that's really true, because it's uh, the bigger the grouping, the more diverse it gets, the less possible to have an idealized version of it, so I think it's it is, and you know, and then why stop there like like it, at, once you get past your neighborhood or your city, then you know your provincial boundary or your national boundary or things like that they do get too far afield to be to to matter all that much, but i think and I, I think you know in some ways that that's maybe one of the things about about Montreal that made it through all the ups and downs, kind of a great place to be is because it, it actually has all this stuff out in the open and these kind of discussions happen all the time. And, and so it's, it's, it's sort of the, that was what I discovered when I got to Toronto, that it was not, I mean, the discussions were, were, were not as, you know, I mean, there's that whole cliche about not as heated and all that kind of stuff, but, but it's definitely true that, that I, I think, these kind of identity issues have been a, a main part of the Montreal identity for quite a while. So that might help in, in, you know, that may be one of the reasons also why it didn't become like a Belfast. It didn't get a wall down it and, and divided and, and real animosity grow it. It's because the conversation is always happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, what are you what are you working on now? What are your kind of upcoming projects? Yeah, so I'm. Um,
2: I, I just can't write about cops anymore. <laughs> I just can't do it. I mean, I, 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 uh, and it really. I mean, it. it I, I think I probably, like you said, with with the character of Eddie Doherty, I was already kind of, kind of uh, myself uh, having, you know. Internal discussions about like I couldn't make him a strictly a good guy and uh and I and I couldn't really do that anymore so I but I do like the I do like the the idea of uh of crime fiction as a way to get into a bunch of neighborhoods because i l- I like that idea and it gives and you know it's funny you know you started this off with Quentin Tarantino and I think one of the things that I like is uh he was a big fan of the novelist Elmore Leonard and I was a big fan of the novelist Elmore Leonard. We kind of have that, you know, same source material and mm-hmm. and, and Elmore Leonard also never really made cops his main characters very often. And definitely as he got uh, older and more successful, his, his characters are always um, a little bit more from the fringes. They were never the brilliant detective. They were uh, more often crime fiction about criminals, but I, I do kind of like, the um, structure of of crime fiction because it it does give you like a like a you know you're you've got a quest you're you're searching for something and that does help because it it's hard to read a whole novel <laughs> yeah like well, you know I, yeah. you get into the long weeds of the middle of it and and you know so I so what I'm working on now is a, a it's it's really a private eye I worked in the movie business as a location scout for a while so I just made this oh, character wow. He's a, he's a <laughs> those, guys, those guys
1: are amazing.
2: Well, it's it's interesting in 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 Montreal and Toronto. What they do is they look for locations that are, could be in another city. So yeah. they're always looking for uh, uh, an apartment with an awning on the front that could be New York, or you know how many things in old Montreal were actually some European city and. And, uh, and what I found was when location scouts get together, they've got great stories of, of a building and, they, and they're saying, oh, don't use that one again. I used that one too many times. And so it, it's always kind of fun like that. Uh, but um, so I, it's funny, I, I, I wrote it actually as a pilot for a TV series set in Montreal about this location scout private eye and I couldn't get anyone interested in it. I pitched it all over. So I, I turned it into a novel but for the novel I had to move it back to Toronto just cuz I'm there now and I'm driving around and You try so, um, I I know it like I just the the like it I don't think I could write a really contemporary novel in Montreal I could only write a historical. So
1: yeah.
2: um, so I, I set it in Toronto and it's a it's a location scout/private eye and and you know uh, I I I did put cops in it but they're just the bad guys. So <laughs> let's see what happens with that. And
1: yeah. when is that coming out?
2: It's coming out in the spring. Next spring it'll be out. So I don't know nice. I don't know the exact date yet,
1: but you're all you're done. It's done. It's done, yeah. It's done. Oh wow. Well I you know, in terms of getting into really, really understanding a place, I I think I don't think I've I'm aware of a better narrative device than what they did with the wire. Like I I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I necessarily liked you know all of the iterations of it, but I think that that model where you tell you have one season that looks at it from the perspective of the cops, and right. then you have one season from the perspective of like the unions yeah and you you carry the characters forward, you know, but they like become uh minor characters in the next right. iteration and then and then one that's is looking at the school boards, one that's yeah. looking at the media, you know look at I found that. If you know, in a in a dream scenario where you were a DJ that took requests, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would I would love to to see the the Montreal stories, just sort of maybe like go over the same ground, but have like a trilogy where the main character is uh, is like I don't know is a a student radical or a, right. a member of the FLQ or is a politician, yeah. you know, working in the in the Drapeau administration and dealing with like all the corruption or or is uh you know somebody like a a reporter working for the uh for the star or maybe you know the the girlfriend judy like somebody you know teaching at LaSalle high and like trying to to just to have like uh like a the same going over the same ground but having a, a different profession be because i i know exactly what you're talking about how it's if you're if you're just writing from one particular perspective it probably gets probably gets like <laughs> boring after a while because you've done it right
2: you know it, it's i i find that it it yeah it can i mean it, it can really i mean some people have done it you know they've written 25 books with the same characters and they're all pretty good i don't know so it it can certainly be done but i i did find that um it's uh, there's a lot more I would love to write about Montreal, and I and I. But the thing is, I I would love it maybe to be like you say, like a TV series or something, because I think in that case, there's a lot of characters and there's a lot of different places it could go. And I I also would would I would love to get that into the 80s as well. You know, it would be uh, I mean that period from from the election of the PQ in 1976 to the first referendum in 1980 is a fascinating time. Oh it's and wow. And you know, there's you could you could easily have a great TV show set in yeah. that era. It would be it would be I mean, like you say, in all those different areas of of stuff going on, um it it's I find it it it's uh it's just vibrant. Even even in the, the parts of it that as the stores get boarded up, there's still there's still always stuff bubbling around.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I I had a lot of fun talking to you about this. Uh, yeah. These these novels have just um, captured my imagination. I mean, yes, part of it is nostalgia, but it's yeah. also just it's um, it's very interesting when you grow up as a as a Canadian, as a Montrealer, as a Quebecer, where almost all of your the, the fiction, that you consume from television programs to movies to yeah. music to novels, it's always happening in the same three places. You know, it's always right. happening in LA or New York yeah. or London or yeah. it's always happening yeah. somewhere else. And so it's, it's so wonderful. It's so interesting to have these kind of rich, interesting stories with all these uh, you know, fascinating characters, but it's happening where you're from. And I know yeah. that sounds so parochial and, and, you know, silly maybe, but it is, it is really, it is really interesting, right. To, to have that, you know, when you're not used to it, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I think so.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's
1: uh, yeah. Anyway. I've been wonderful talking to you and um, I would, I would love to get you on the podcast again um, to talk about your Toronto trilogy. I'm starting, <laughs> I'm starting that this afternoon. Oh, it's, um, quite so, a,
2: it's quite different. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I,
1: yeah. So, I would love to get you on uh, when I'm done with the Toronto trilogy to talk about that. Are you game?
2: Great. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, have a wonderful day and uh, we will talk soon.
2: Great. Thank you very much. All
1: right. Take care. Bye bye.